I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. For me, doing tricks in a magic show is a playful epistemological experience. You are playing around in a safe zone with how we determine what's true. But we've seen what happens when truth is played with on a real stage, uh, in the real world, with politics and so on. And it's horrific. To put it in very blunt terms, if you come to see a Penn & Teller show and you say, if these two guys can make me think something that's, that's patently not true, what can people with a real budget and with a lack of morals do? <laughs> That's Penn Gillette, half of the Penn and Teller magic team. Penn is the half that talks. He tells me Teller has a lot to say behind the scenes. And it never occurred to me until our conversation that magic tricks could shine a light on these truth-challenged times we live in. But Penn has some interesting ideas on how we process reality. Plus, he tells me how magic brought him together with the Nobel Prize-winning physicist Richard Feynman. This is so great that you could be on the show with me today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Oh, me too. Me too. It's it's wonderful to see you. Well, you know, the first thing I wanted to ask you about is a twist on the old joke. We're seeing less of you these days because there is less of you these There's days. There's much less of me, yeah. About 120 pounds less of me, yeah. How did you do such a thing? I mean, I, I, I want to start with that because probably everybody wants to know how they can lose 120 Well, you know, it's also been, uh, <laughs> I've also kept it off for five years, which is the more miraculous part. Um, yeah. The way I did it was uh, I finally uh, understood something about myself. Um, every time they talk about diet, they always talk about making it easy. And for... Uh, 30 years, I tried all these ways to make it easy. And then a friend of mine who's a scientist, uh, worked at NASA and got very interested in nutrition. Uh, I said to him, you know, you have a way for me to lose weight easily. He said, no, it's going to be really hard. <laughs> and I realized that uh, I have never respected or enjoyed moderation. And once someone said to me it was going to be hard, it became, well, so to speak, easy. Because uh, no one brags about walking up a grassy slope. They brag about climbing Everest. So as soon as I knew it was going to be really, really hard, I was able to do it. I became uh, hardcore vegan and whole food. And uh, then it became uh, just, I changed myself. And that was, uh, that was fun. And that was exciting, and that was, I felt like I accomplished something, as opposed to take a smaller portion of salmon and try to do that <laughs> over five years, you know. Now, I think it's important to say, especially to our audience, who I think is very tuned into this idea, that you just didn't do a crackpot idea on your own. You if did you, it in consult. If you take nutritional advice from a Las Vegas magician, you deserve to die. <laughs> uh, I so did you this, consulted your doctor. I did not have one doctor. I had five doctors. And uh, <laughs> I was being tested all the time. And I was having my blood pressure monitored and all my meds. And I did it uh, very, very smart and with, a, uh, with an awful lot of um, observation and consultation. So, yeah, you cannot do what I did without input from someone other than a Las Vegas magician. 
I noticed some similarities between us. When you talked about moderation, I remember when I was 16, I decided what one of my guiding stars would be. Moderation in all things, especially moderation. No doubt about that. I, uh, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I think you want things. I mean, it's one of the reasons I also have this uh, rather eccentric quality that I've never had a, a drink of alcohol or a, uh, even a sip of alcohol or a puff of marijuana or any recreational drug in my life. Never having a sip of alcohol is totally immoderate. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, I kind of felt, and I, I, you know, I, I certainly can't, um, I don't want to test this, but I felt that for my personality, it would be one way or the other, and I uh -huh. chose teetotaling. The other way in which... I have some faint similarity to you is that when I was a little kid, I was standing in the wings when my father was in uh, vaudeville watching, I think it was The Great Blackstone. And I, I loved watching magic because from the wings, you learn everything. Yeah, it's from very educational. Wings, it's educational yeah, from the wings. I, I could see where he hid the pigeons. <laughs> and it was true when my, I would watch my father and other actors on stage. I'd watch from the wings, and I could see where they hid their pigeons. <laughs> and I learned, I learned acting from the wings. Well, I'm very, uh, you know, I'm very envious of your, uh, your, your family background in showbiz. You know, when I, first person I ever met in show business was me. Um, <laughs> we had, uh, in my little town of Greenfield, Massachusetts, we had nobody. I never even saw a live show, you know. Um, wow. And uh, so I taught myself to juggle and uh, taught myself magic thinking if I practiced enough, the doors to show business would open for me. But I always wanted, you know, when I, when I, whenever I meet friends of mine, I mean, even Teller, who uh, grew up in Center City, Philadelphia, and he had, you know, productions of the Fantastics that he ran Spotlight on. And uh, all my city friends who had some sort of culture or show business around them, I had none of that ever. Well, did you practice on family and friends? Yes, and I started even doing shows. I mean, I did talent shows, and I uh, uh -huh. performed at nursing homes and Boy Scout oh, troops. Uh, but I didn't have anybody. Uh, you know, county fair would come to town once a year, and I might see someone do a uh, a brief show there or the uh, or the ten and one. But uh, everything for me was just uh, television. You know. Did you start right away inventing your own tricks? Well, I started as a juggler and not a magician. Uh -huh. And I started with Mike Motion, who was one MacArthur Fellowship for, for juggling uh, uh. the end of the 20th century. Um, we were next-door neighbors. We learned to juggle together. And uh, we went out to do a silent juggling act, but I started commenting on it. <laughs> and, um, and then I found out that... Um, the more I talked and the less I juggled, the more success I had. <laughs> so by the time I met up with Teller, I was very comfortable doing the, uh, doing the patter while Teller and I did the tricks. Tell me about Teller. By the way, I, I, I felt bad that I couldn't remember his first name, and I looked <laughs> him up on the, on the Internet, and I found out he changed his name so that he only has one he name. He only has one name. He's one of the, uh, I believe it's three or four people with an American passport that has one name on it. No kidding. Wow. You're the one who talks. So, in, in the act, I mean. So, I get the impression that a lot of people must think 
you're the you're the only big cheese there. I mean, you are a big cheese. You're a tall hunk of camembert. <laughs> so, especially next to Teller. But what, is he a co-magician? Is he a co-inventor of illusions? Uh, Teller, how, how do you Teller, work? Teller is the brains of Penn and Teller, without a doubt. Um, Teller is um, uh, seven years older than me. So we mm. first worked together. Uh, I was 18. Teller was 25. Teller was a, uh, a tenured high school Latin teacher. Uh, I have no education at all. Teller is uh, very well educated. Um, Teller was always the um, the guiding force, and I was always, I mean, now I'm 65, but I was always the kid. You know, when we were playing um, clubs and stuff, I wasn't allowed in. I was always in on a fake ID. And uh, uh, Teller uh, is the director of the show. Teller is, for the most part, the uh, technician behind the tricks. Uh, we write the ideas of the show together. I almost always write the words, but Teller's responsible for everything that happens um, uh, visually. As a matter of fact, uh, this is unheard of. When we were uh, on Broadway, uh, opening on Broadway, for the rehearsals, I wasn't there. Teller huh. was there with the stand-in, and Teller did all the directing with someone else and said, uh, Penn will be here, Penn will stand here, Penn will talk for a while, Penn will walk over to here, Penn will do this, Penn will do that. Because the, um, the what I call the furniture moving, the uh, blocking, the setting everything up, I have no patience for. And for it, Teller- It is tiresome, yeah. For Teller, it's everything. Teller wants to know where every light goes, where every uh. prop is, where every detail is, and then he sets all that up, and then I, I do whatever I want. <laughs> <laughs> right. What about the actual creation of an illusion? Uh, that is usually Teller and I. Uh, there's a way that magic is often done, which is they call about you know they talk about old wine and new bottles, where they'll find an illusion that someone has done, a trick that someone has done, and then they'll paint it a different way or uh -huh. put a different story on top of it and call that a different trick, make it their own mark. Um, we've never liked that. What Teller and I like to do is to lay out what we'd like to see in a trick and then figure out a way to do it. Now over, you know, 50 years, uh, you develop an intuition for what's possible. So you don't go mm. running 100 miles an hour down a dead-end street. Mm. But um, we do try to lay out what we'd like to do. And uh, with things we're interested in, with something we'd like to say. And uh, then we start working on the trick before we know how to do it. And then we, uh, we start figuring out, oh, well, I put my hand in my pocket there. Maybe we can use that. And maybe mm -hmm. we can use this angle. And then when it comes down to the really hard stuff, the actual building the actual brains of the operation, I once again step away and tell it as most of the work. I've had an idea or two, but uh, uh, on our show, Fool Us, uh, what the magicians usually say is when you need to fool Penn and Teller, you just need to fool Teller. <laughs> <laughs> do you see a difference between an illusion and a trick, or are they the same thing? I do. I do very much. Um, I think illusions aren't as good. Um, oh, so just define them for me. Uh, an illusion is something that 
looks one way and is really another. Uh, illusions are in magic often done with uh, boxes that have a base that are thicker than you think they are because they taper towards you or they have a dazzling line of lights or, of course, the uh, the cliche, which is often true, that it's mirrors, 45-degree angle mirror, 90-degree angle mirror that's reflecting something you don't think. It's an illusion that happens uh, in the visual, uh, visual part of the brain. Uh, what I'm interested in is tricks, because tricks are intellectual. Uh, tricks are uh, ideas that you get someone to usually, the more successful you are, get them to lie to themselves. Because a trick instantly deals with one of the most important subjects we can deal with, which is how we establish what's real, how we agree on a reality. So for me, doing tricks in a magic show is a playful epistemological experience. You are playing around in a safe zone with how we determine what's true. And uh, we have seen, I don't, no reason to get into this because I believe we all agree, but we've seen what happens when truth is played with on a real stage uh, in the real world with politics and so on. And it's horrific. But I believe that a playful dealing with how we determine what's true can then be used like most play in the real world. I mean, to put it in very blunt terms, if you come to see a Penn and Teller show and you say, if these two guys can make me think something that's that's patently not true, what can people with a real budget and with a lack of morals do? <laughs> that's very much what I wanted to ask you because it sounded like you were saying that in a meta way, the presentation of the trick is a challenge to the audience to outthink you. No, I don't think and, so. I think that I would I would use the word illusion, I would use the uh, word trick, and I would use the word puzzle. Uh, um, what we're doing is not puzzles. We're not saying that we're giving you the equipment you need to be able to solve a uh, uh, puzzle we're yes. giving you. Yes, we are right. telling you, um, think about what, what leads you here and what goes down here and let's play with this together. And I think that is much more um, uh, intellectually uh, deep. Uh, it's more profound and um, it's more fun. I have a rule that I follow, tell her to, that um, I don't know of any other magician that follows, which is, uh, I call it the sawing in half rule. When, uh, when, you go to see somebody saw a human being in half and take them apart. Unless you have re real mental problems, you do not believe you witnessed a homicide on stage. Mm -hmm. You believe you've seen a trick. I believe that our entire show has to be that. That you must leave the theater not believing anything that I myself know not to be true. That becomes very difficult with a branch of magic called mentalism, where you act like you read minds. Mm. And magicians will use all sorts of double talk to say, uh, I'm reading body language. They'll say, I'm, I'm, I'm using lie detector techniques. They'll say, I'm doing advanced 
uh, memorization. And all of those things uh, are not true. And I believe that although I can lead you into that for a moment during our show, that I do not want to ever finish a trick with you believing something that I know myself not to be true. The job of figuring out the universe is something that does not need roadblocks maliciously thrown in the way. <laughs> right. We have right. enough trouble. We have dark matter. <laughs> you know, we got to work on that. Benji Lett and I will be back after this short break when Penn will tell me the secret of how he baffled even Nobel laureate Richard Feynman with his magic tricks. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on a virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free, but you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Alda Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Penn Gillette and his friendship with the Nobel laureate Richard Feynman. Another thing that we share is a uh, fascination, and I also believe a friendship, with, uh, with Richard Feynman. Yes. Um, uh, Richard Feynman was a friend of mine. Oh, really? You knew him? Yes. And oh, great. Uh, he came to our show many times, and I had a monologue at the end of the show, um, it was about fire eating and about the uh, carnival sideshow. But during it, I talked about how um, reality-based thinking was actually more in love with mystery than um, magical thinking. Mm -hmm. That when scientists said, I don't know, that they had more love of the mystery than someone who says, I do know, and it's God. Or, or it's some other kind of miracle. Yeah, that, that's, I never heard it put that way, and that's very nice. And I thought that this whole idea, uh, atheists are often accused of not accepting the mystery. And my mm -hmm. argument was always, it's exactly the opposite. 
atheists are very happy going, mm, I don't know. The three <laughs> most important words of the scientific method are, I don't know. Those right. were not said until 500 years ago. You know, right. uh, priests and, and uh, rulers and kings, they always knew. Scientists came along and went, I don't know. I don't know. And uh, <laughs> those three words are, to me, the scientific method. So I had this monologue that dealt with fire eating and how I learned fire eating. And I was completely blown away because Richard Feynman came to the show and then came back and brought his wife to hear that monologue. And then at one point, when we were playing in L.A., brought eight Nobel Prize winners with him in the Feynman party to see uh, to see our show and to see that monologue. And afterwards was saying to his friends, see, that's what we're trying to say. And, oh, that's uh, great. So in that monologue, you said what you just said. I said now about, about the mystery, yeah. About mystery, yeah. And the that's... great thing about doing tricks for Feynman was all you had to do was do it twice and do it a different way the second time, and you nailed him. Because he did not think that you'd have two ways to do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great technique. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, it works on everybody, but it destroyed Feynman. I can't claim to have been a close friend of his, but we spent, you know, hours together. And uh, the thing I tell my science friends that makes them just insane with envy. Uh, I told you I'm uneducated. I, I didn't, I didn't really, um, I didn't really finish high school. And um, so I would be reading Feynman's books like, uh, like QED or mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 the simple lectures. And I realized I didn't have the algebra. So uh, I didn't realize how out of line this was. I would call up Richard and say, uh, hi, this is Penn. I'm reading your book. I, I never really took algebra, and I'm having trouble with this part. And he'd say, okay, uh, get out a pad of paper and a pencil. Let's, let's teach algebra. <laughs> <laughs> Being taught algebra by Richard Feynman. <laughs> you may be on, the only person in the world who can say that. We'd sit on the phone for 20 minutes, and he'd say, okay, you've got enough now. Go read more of the book. <laughs> and uh, when we were going on Letterman, we wanted to do a liquid air show. We wanted to do a, some tricks with liquid nitrogen. Uh -huh. So uh, Teller was saying, we need to find someone who knows all this physics stuff. And I said, well, let's call Feynman. Let's start with Feynman. So I called the Richard Feynman and said, listen, we want to do a stuff with liquid air show, liquid nitrogen. And he said, I haven't done that shit since high school. I, I don't touch things. I'm theoretical. Um, um, uh, yeah, let me make a phone call. And uh, about a half an hour later, a professor from a Brooklyn community college called me up and said, I know someone's playing a gag on me. I know it's a joke, but I think... Nobel Prize winner Richard Feynman just called me, asked me about liquid nitrogen, and said to call Penn and Teller to do a <laughs> trick on Letterman. And I said, that's precisely right. <laughs> yeah, that's so great. 
It's so what so a, what yes, a great I used story. I used Richard Feynman in a way that no one else would be stupid enough to use him. Well, you know, I played him on stage. I do know. I do know. In a wonderful play called QED. I do know very well. Yeah. And uh, you know what's funny about that? He had this accent that he claimed was from Far Rockaway. But I've met his sister who speaks like you and me. It's like Bob Dylan. He totally invented that accent. Whether he invented it or not, he got a lot of mileage out of <laughs> being just old Dick Feynman. Yeah, I know. You know. And uh, I, I really have suspected that he, that he made it up because... It, First of all, I've talked to people from Far Rockaway. In fact, one of them came back. Feynman used to always say, very interesting. So a guy came backstage one night and said, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good performance, but um, in Far Rockaway, we don't say interesting. We say interesting. <laughs> so so he, I wouldn't know where Feynman got it from. Well, it's, a, it's, it's an impossible task you had because you're doing um, – you're doing an accent and a voice that the person kind of made up and wasn't consistent with. You know, I couldn't, I could never really do the accent the way he did it. Well, you know, and probably because you're right, there's nobody else to, 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 to get it from. I think the Feynman thing was um, I've known very, very smart people. And to, for those people to function socially, there's all this disarming stuff they have to do. And I think a lot of Feynman's carriage and a lot of Feynman's speech was to try to make, you know, dumb guys like me comfortable talking to him. And he did. He made me so comfortable I could call him up and ask him questions about algebra. I mean, um, I'm six foot seven. And mm -hmm. uh, when I come in a room, I take up a whole doorway and uh, you end up finding techniques to kind of lean over a little bit when you're talking to people and slouch a little bit, not do big gestures. And I think maybe intellectually Feynman was doing that, you know, mm. so that you could mm. have, I could talk to him very, very comfortably. And I had no right to talk to him comfortably, you know, but I could. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that was all just, uh, just more of what, what a wonderful, wonderful human being he was. Well, he had that, thing that you were talking about before about the appreciation of the mystery of the universe trying to get nature to reveal her secrets that's often how he talked about it and so quickly so quick to say i don't know he would get these very deep questions in his head and he'd try out some answers to those questions but he would be the first one to attack his own answers well that you know to to circle back to magic, what you always want to do is if you're lying to somebody, um, they'll catch you. But if you mm. get someone to lie to themselves, you've got them. Mm. And that is what we're always trying to do. Get people to make assumptions and get people to tell, because they'll put a wall up against me. But if I can come around the edge, uh, we can fool them that way. So give me an example without violating the well, secrecy, I, the magician's um, secrecy. How do you get me to lie to myself well, doing for instance, a trick? 
uh, I'll give a, a classic of magic. Um, there's a classic of magic that goes back. It's an American trick. goes back uh, a few hundred years um, called the bullet catch. And yeah. uh, the magician would always claim that a signed bullet, of course, in, in the days of muzzle loaders, it would be a signed uh, a ball that would then be musket loaded and then shot across the stage. And the magician would catch it either in their hand or in their mouth. And uh, that was the bullet catch. Also, the most dangerous trick in show business. It killed uh, killed 14 people. And uh, when you claim that, I'm going to catch a bullet, I'm going to catch a bullet in my teeth, the audience, uh, especially a modern audience, will immediately say, no, you're not. Mm -hmm. You're not going to do that. So when Teller and I did the bullet catch, which we did double, and we did with 357 Magnums. What do you mean you did it double? Uh, Teller and I both fired at once through panes of glass at each other, both catching in our mouth. Oi. Both shooting at once. And the glass breaks. Yes, bu bullet holes. Um, yeah. And signed bullet and loaded by audience members and examined by, we always would get a member of the military or police to check it out, a, a gun expert. I never said we're going to catch a bullet. Never said that once. I said, we're going to move this piece of metal from this side of the stage to that side of the stage without crossing the line in the middle of the stage. We're going to take that piece of metal and move it to this side of the stage without crossing that line. We're going to break the glass and we're going to use these 357 Colt Python Magnum Magic Wands. Without crossing the line, what uh, do you there, mean? there was a line on the stage, a visual line. You, on the you stage. mean you mean the bullet? You said the bullet's going to leave here and land there, but it's not going to go across. Without that anybody line. else crossing the line, without me or the gun or Teller and I will oh, never cross. Oh, oh, I see. The bullet was supposed to cross yes, the line. Yes. All I we're going to do is move a piece this big from this side of the stage to the other. Right. The audience, in their make believe keeps telling themselves they're going to load the gun and shoot it across the stage through the glass. Uh, but I've never said that. So that yeah. their defense is in a they different created, place. They created a false scenario. Yeah, they've created the trick themselves. Now, yeah. that's a very, very broad example of that. Um, the, the more simple example is when you take a ball and place it under the cup, you don't say, I'm placing the ball under the cup. That's a mistake magicians make all the time. Because when you say, I'm placing the ball under the cup, the audience goes, well, maybe he's not. But if you simply place the ball under the cup while talking about someone else, something else, the audience just goes along with that. They just tell that lie to themselves. So you always want to get the audience to do the work. This uh, raises a question in my mind. I don't want to get specific about politicians, but to talk about the nature of politics and promises made, regardless of the party that we're talking about, it sounds like there's some correspondence between getting the audience to create their own lie. Well, it's really interesting because uh, there's something happening now. There have been a few books written about this that's that's fascinating and terrifying, whereas, especially with Trump, and it's such an egregious and, and horrific example that it, it may be the only one to go to, followers of Trump will also tell you they know he's lying. 
they'll tell you they know it's not true. The thing that's so interesting is um, the idea of the dual reality of they could be lying to other people, but I see the truth behind it. And I mm. I remember, and I'll use an example that's not as as loaded and as sad. Uh, I'll use an example of Obama, who I had many, many, many friends who said, well, Obama's obviously an atheist. And he mm. says he's Christian because you have to say that in order to be elected. And I would say to them, well, aren't you being disrespectful to him by calling him a liar? And they would mm. say, no, 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 no. We know he's an atheist. He's one of us. He just has to say that to be elected. And it drove me crazy because I would say, uh, I would rather Obama be an atheist. I would rather believe that I had that in common with him, but I'm not going to be disrespectful and say, well, when you go to church and say that you're Christian, you're just lying to be elected. That's not the right way to be. And they also did it with Obama on um, LGBT stuff. They mm -hmm. said, you know, he won't come out in favor of gay marriage, even though we know in his heart he is. And I'm using the example of Obama as someone who was brilliant and I believe incredibly honest because I saw that dual reality happening with my friends. Mm. You know, he's lying to other guys, but we see the truth. Uh, what? It, it's so interesting that your work as a magician is entertaining, exciting, stimulates our minds, but it also can be a model for so many other aspects of our lives. And it is a form of communication and it sort of it invites us to think about communication in ways we hadn't before. Well, I think that's really true. You know, you, uh, especially doing the um, the speaking for Penn and Teller, mm. uh, I, uh, I, I'm very aware of the levels of communication that go on. I mean, I, I'm able to watch Teller work silently on stage and then follow that with me, um, with me speaking and seeing the kinds of communications that happen on, on, on different levels. You don't usually see that kind of A-B comparison as clearly as, uh, as you do, as you said, watching from the wings uh, <laughs> yeah. of, of our show. You know, I get to right. watch Teller from the wings, and there's a lot, there's a lot to, um, to take in there, you know. Well, there's been a lot to take in from you today. I really enjoyed it. We, we have I want to, to say one more thing. Do you Please know do. that I have written lines that you have spoken? What? When you were on the West Wing, yeah. uh, we did a thing where our trick, we did flag burning. We burned a flag and restored it. And my dear friend, Lawrence O'Donnell, said, uh, I want to take your, your trick and put it into the West Wing. So Teller and I did the trick at the White House. And then I had a whole monologue chunk about freedom of speech and what that means with the flag. LOD said to me, or Lawrence O'Donnell, I call him LOD. Uh, LOD said to me, you know, let's give that to Alda. <laughs> and I went, you're giving, you're giving my monologue from my show that I worked on for years. You're going to give it to Alda? And he said, 
I think it'll just play well on him. I said, are you saying that Alda will deliver my lines better than me? And he went, <laughs> baby. <laughs> <laughs> People come up to me after the show and say... They say, you stole that from Alan Alda. Wasn't it nice of the West Wing to let you use... <laughs> to let you use all of that monologue stuff from their show in your stage show, to which I respond, fuck you. <laughs> Final words. <laughs> we always end our show with seven quick questions. Okay. And they're vaguely related to communication. Number one, what do you wish you really understood? I think I would say... The person I'm speaking with all the time, whoever that individual is. That's great. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Uh, I believe that anything you do with manipulation is patronizing and condescending. I think the best way is to say, I believe you're wrong. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? <laughs> um, if it's true that I dropped my penis into a blow dryer. <laughs> and you think that was strange? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I did. The answer is yes, which is probably even stranger. <laughs> I, I'm not even going to go go there. I, I'm going to move on to the next question. Okay. How do you stop a compulsive talker? You know, I don't. Uh, you know, I have a lot of friends who are carny trash. And when someone is cutting up jackpots, just sitting, holding court and talking and not able to stop, one of my favorite things to happen is for someone to take stage at, in a social situation for a half an hour and just yap. I love it. It's a great description of, of the setting. I love that. Okay, let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a real, a true conversation with that person? I think, I'm afraid it's a, a cliche, but, but lately I like to hear what people are reading. Hmm. That tells you a lot. Um, it tells you whether they read or not. <laughs> well, and if they're willing to lie about it. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, next question. What gives you confidence? I, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to give a pretty pedestrian answer. Um, practice. You know, mm. I, I, uh, I, I, love, uh, I love going in front of an audience confidently because I've done what I'm going to do a thousand times. Last question. What book changed your life? Oh, geez. So many. Oh, so many. Lately, I would say either the, um, the uh, Harari books um, or Pinker's Enlightenment Now or uh, the new book out, Humankind. The fact that my pathological optimism is defensible gave me a kind of intellectual level to my emotional joy that was life-changing. And even with the heartbreaks and the terrible things that are happening, things do continue to get better in provable ways. And uh, knowing that intellectually along with emotionally, especially 
as we speak right now today, when um, we're facing the worst health crisis of humanity, it's nice to remember that in the long run, it's very likely our children will be doing better than we are. Thanks for a really, really stimulating and fun conversation. I hope we have another one soon. That would be great. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you, Penn. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Penn Gillette and his partner in Magic Teller have been working together for over 40 years. Their long-running show in the Penn & Teller Theater at the Rio Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas is on hold due to the pandemic. But their television show, Penn & Teller, Fool Us, is playing new episodes in front of a virtual audience on the CW network. Penn's book describing his epic weight loss is Presto, How I Made 100 Pounds Disappear, and other magical tales. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Eric Lander. Eric was one of the leaders of the groundbreaking effort to sequence the human genome. We recorded this conversation a couple of months ago, and since then, Eric Lander has become the first person to be nominated to a cabinet position as presidential science advisor. Eric told me what motivates him as a scientist, and now he has an even greater chance to see that dream become reality. I think the people who go into science, more often than not, are doing it to leave the world better off. I mean, when we were doing the Human Genome Project, I, I always took time to point out to our whole team that was doing this that they would tell their grandchildren someday that they had worked on this and they'd be really proud. There are few ways to be able to work on something where, where you can say, I'm going to, together with others, leave a legacy that's going to make the world better off. But it does mean you have to think not just about doing great science, you have to think about ensuring that it truly delivers on its promise. And that that has a, a ethical dimension, a moral dimension, and it makes a, a full, well-rounded life if you're willing to take all that on. Eric Lander, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>